what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell a story from Mark that I read, talked about how it spoke to me and how I think it can speak to you. The story I'm going to tell is the story of the disciples in this boat in the storm. So what we do is, first of all, we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding because we know that these things are spiritually understood. So let's just pray right now, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. And Holy Spirit, we thank you. You've promised to enlighten our understanding so we will hear what you are saying to us. And we pray that as we read your word this morning, that you will speak to each one of us through this passage of scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about this passage. I'm going to end by by challenging you as to what this passage is saying to you. So that's an overview. Those are the seven steps that we go through. And I have the sheets and spare copies if you didn't get a copy. And it's online. I'd like now to look at the story that we find in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. First of all, some background the boats in those days were not very big. They've actually found a boat from that era. This is the the, the wood they found. It's semi-preserved in a museum. And people have reconstructed what that would have looked like and made a, a, mo- a model of what the boat would have looked like. And one of the things you realize about it is it's not very big. And for 12 people to be in one of these, it's going to be fairly full. And I don't know where Jesus was, but maybe he was tucked under that platform at the back because there's not much else room for it. But this would be in a standard fishing boat and Jesus was asleep in the bottom of this boat. So I want you to imagine you're there. I want you to imagine you're at Galilee. This is a picture of Galilee and it's dusk and at this, apparently storms can come up very violently, but probably to start with, it's nice and calm and they're setting out and you're in this boat and Jesus is asleep and it's not a long journey, but you're traveling across the lake. And so you're there and we read on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. They're reinforcing it's not a big boat. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. So can you imagine that? You're there, and the water's coming in. It's not big to start with. You've got it full of people. The water is coming in already. I want to ask you, what would you have done? Can you imagine yourself there? It's dark. The great big waves are coming up. And there is, there you are. That's not a photograph. It's an artist's impression, but it's pretty dramatic. There you are. What are you going to do? What are you going to do at this moment? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. There's Jesus. He's asleep. What's he doing there? He's asleep. Jesus, don't you realize the problems that I'm in? What are you doing sleeping there in the boat? These are hardened sailors. These are people who go sailing for a living. They're fishermen. Must have been one bad storm to have caused them to be panicking like this. It was filling with water. Jesus was asleep. The story goes on. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So I want to go back to that question I asked, what would you have done? You know, I think it would have been, I don't think I could have resisted waking up Jesus. I I think I would have had to have woken him up. Um, If I was that frightened and he was there, I I think I would have had to woke him up. I don't know what you think. Um, So what did they do that was so wrong? That's a question. Uh, Well, did you notice the way they spoke to him? Do you notice what they said? What was the accusation that was implicit in there, the way they said, yeah? He didn't care, exactly. He didn't care. Do you ever speak to God like that? I'm afraid I do sometimes. Don't you care, God? Don't you care? And so this is the implicit. So maybe it was that that was wrong. And to start off with, as I read that passage, I thought, yeah, that was the problem, that they they shouldn't have spoken to him in that way. It was okay to wake him up, but they shouldn't have done it in that way. But actually, uh, thinking about it, I don't think they should have even woken him up. Because, just think about it. If he really is the God that created the universe, and they really believe that, could he possibly be that he would die in a little lake in Galilee? How could that possibly happen if you really think he's God? So I think waking him up, was a failure to understand who he really was. Let me ask you, what should they have done? Jesus had told them to go across the boat, the other side. So they were right where Jesus wanted them to be. And this is a very good question to ask when you're in trouble, when you're in in difficulties. Am Am I doing what Jesus wanted me to? Because if I am, what do I have to fear? What possibly can go wrong if I'm actually doing what I believe Jesus should wants me to do? Now, not not necessarily perfectly, but you know, I'm doing the right. I'm in the right track, and so these are very good um, suggestions that I I think you've been making. And uh, it doesn't tell us, of course, what they should have done. It doesn't give us a specific answer, but we know what they shouldn't have done. They shouldn't have have not had faith. They clearly didn't have faith at this point. Um. I would like to switch over at this point to saying, how might this direct us? What kind of storms do we have? And this is one of the stories where it's not that difficult to make a jump from the scriptures. So how does this relate to us? And uh, I want to just suggest some ways it relates to us. In the early church, we find sometimes they used a symbol, which I've tried to reproduce there. It was a, like a little kind of rough boat shape and then waves written across it. And they used that as a symbol for persecution. And so that was one of the ways that they would take this story and uh, apply it to themselves in their lives. Now, we may have dramatic storms in our life. We can have physical storms, so we can have sickness or injury or, or death. We can have 
a storm like someone close to us dying, which is really quite a dramatic and difficult storm to have. We can have relational storms where uh, sometimes we're treated unfairly by other people. There may be a situation at work. I've been in a situation where for about a year I had a boss that was really, really mean and makes your life in misery every day. And you go to work and you know right from beginning to end this person is a misery. And there you see them coming towards you in a distance and you know it's bad news. And, and you know, that kind of thing, is it's a low-grade, it's not an, an instant hit, but it's a low-grade thing. Um, it used to be thought that PTSD was something you only got from a high-impact trauma, but it's been realized that actually there's what they call chronic PTSD, where, where a situation that's low-grade but chronic that goes on can have just the same kind of effects on you physically, give you the same sort of thing. So that, that, that could be it. Or it could be a, a marriage breakup or parents' marriage breaking up or some other friendship that's breaking up that's just so traumatic and gut-wrenching and tearing you apart. Uh, or it could be persecution for what we believe, as I mentioned, the early church used this. Uh, some storms are not so dramatic, but they can cut us deeply, eating into us over a long period of time. And uh, I, I'm sure that you could talk, each one of you, about storms you've had. Some of you, I know, have had traumatic, gut-wrenching storms. Uh, I haven't had really storms that, are, that would match some of the storms that you've had. But as I look back, um, if you rem- some of you remember that uh, about four years ago I had a problem with my voice that was steadily getting worse and I went to the doctors and discovered I had a lump on my vocal cords and they were going to do a biopsy of it. So it was all scheduled and I made the mistake of doing research on it on the internet. Discovered that lumps on your vocal cords... of the chance is cancer. It didn't help when I actually went for a pre-procedure when there were people in the ward who couldn't speak and they had all of these counselling things to give you if you had to have your vocal cords removed and what, you know, trying to help you emotionally cope with it. Uh, That didn't really help. But I trusted God and I prayed and gave it to God and the church prayed and in God's Grace, there was nothing. I was in the 17%. I later learned that actually it's people who smoke generally are in the 87%. So I was actually, it wasn't quite as bad as I'd expected it to be. But nevertheless, for me, that was a storm. To lose your vocal cords is not, not a good thing. It's a pretty traumatic thing in your life. Uh, some of you have had traumatic immigration issues and some of you are going through those things. I had some some small amount of trauma in my immigration where there was a point where I was told I was out of status and I had very short time to resolve it and I could my, myself and my whole family could have been thrown out of the country. But in an amazing way, which I've talked about before, I won't go through now, in an amazing way, God just quite supernaturally took me out of that problem. I've had situations of personal betrayal where somebody you think loves you, you think you can trust, you think is there for you, turns out to be plotting evil against you and trying to destroy you. And a whole lot suddenly comes up and you realize this is a web of lies against you trying to destroy you. 
it's so destructive. And some of you have probably experienced something like that. It's a storm. And in God's grace, God kept me through it. So we have storms at different levels in our lives. Some of them intense. Some of them are just annoying things. Some of them go for a long time. Some are more a short time. Now, I don't want to give you the idea that God always rescues Christians from problems. We don't have a God that, you know, any time you have a problem, you press the magic button and God pulls you out of the situation. Things are not like that. And the, the problem is what happens when God's answer is not the one that we want. Um, what When these storms of life come upon us, what do we do? Well, almost always Christians pray. I'm sure you pray. But what kind of a prayer is it? What sort of thing do you say to God? And if God doesn't answer straight away, our prayer can sometimes become resigned. Well, you know, I knew God wasn't going to answer this. Or desperate, God, please, please do this. Or demanding, like theirs was, do you not care, God? Or even more demanding, accusing God of not caring. And I'm sure you've been through this spectrum. I've been through this spectrum. And underlying it, even if we don't really feel it, underlying it is the the problem that we worry, generally, not so much that God couldn't help us. Usually, if we're Christians, we believe that God is able to help us. He's supernatural. He made the universe. It's really whether God wants to help us. Actually, whether he cares about us. Sometimes I think we see him as being some sort of distant parent figure who's got our best interests in, in mind and, but not necessarily have our happiness and our joy as his first priority. He wants to do good things for us in the same way as a doctor might want us to have good medicine. But if we left our lives totally up to him, up to God, we'd never get any fun. Because that's not part of what God has for us. He wants us to kind of live a good life and get to heaven. But actually, as for enjoying ourselves, you know, that's up to us. If we want good things, we want fun things, we have to look after that. God doesn't actually understand our real deep needs, the things that we long for, the need to be loved by others, the need for close relationships. And uh, he can be trusted with some things, but not those things. Uh, and I'll look after my needs right now, and God can look after my spiritual eternal well-being. I think sometimes we divide it up like that. And so when God doesn't answer our prayers in exactly the way we want him to, I think we assume he doesn't care. I'll say that again. When he doesn't answer our prayers in exactly the way we want him to, we assume he doesn't care. So I think this is the core of the problem. And I'm probably as guilty as you are of of, uh, assuming God's not caring. So what does God say about that? Well, we probably all know the verse in Romans 8. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And we we say, all things, all good things. And so I think this is where faith comes in. And uh, 
believing that God actually does know your deepest desires and needs. God really cares about you. God knows what the, the, the longing you have in your heart that you've never told anybody. You've never told the people who are closest to you. They don't know. It's the deep embedded longing you have. God knows. And God cares about that. And what happens to you is not a reflection of God not knowing and God not caring. He just might have something better in the long run to meet that deep need you have, that deep longing, than you actually want in the short term. So as I was thinking about this, as I was thinking, how does this speak to me? How does this speak about faith? Because really this this verse I've got up there is about faith. It's about trusting, trusting God. How does this relate to faith? I read on in Mark and the drama continues. So the next thing ha- happens in the book of Mark is there's uh, they cross the sea, they get out the other side, and there's a man with a thousand demons, legion. And Jesus just commands, and the demons leave him. They go into a herd of pigs, and the man is completely free. He's sitting there clothed in his right mind. And you say, well, where was faith in that story? Well, obviously the guy didn't have any faith. Jesus healed him, cast the demons without any faith that's in him. And what about the next story? Well, the next story is Jesus is on his way to to Jairus' house, and a woman who's been having a problem with bleeding for 12 years comes up and just secretly touches the edge of his garment, and she's healed. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. She's very embarrassed to be uncovered and shown, but Jesus says, no, your faith has healed you. I thought, well, this is interesting. What's, what's going on there? What does it mean your faith has healed you? Um, because earlier on, a few chapters earlier, there were some men who brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. They opened the roof up. They let him through. And Jesus said, not to the paralyzed man, but to the friends, your faith has made this man well. What's going on here? And as I thought about it, I realized actually I was overthinking it because it's a lot simpler than, than I, I was thinking. Basically, uh, we tend to think of faith, I think, far more abstract than, than, than the Bible is using it. It's belief that leads to action. So what had actually saved this woman was the fact that she touched Jesus. That's what saved her. If she'd had all the faith in the world but not actually touched him, she wouldn't have got saved. And so it was her believing action that saved her. What about the guy let down through the roof? Well, it was the friends that bought him. It was the friends that actually believed in Jesus enough to break the roof up and let him down. And it was their believing behavior that saved them. So this is interesting because the next story is about the man Jairus, whose daughter is sick. He goes and calls Jesus to heal his daughter and does that require faith? Well, yeah, he thinks Jesus can. But then when they get there, the child's died. And so they all say, uh, it's uh, too late, Jesus. And he says, no, he's sleeping. And they start laughing at him. But Jesus persists and raises the child from the dead. So where's the faith there? Well, the girl didn't have any faith. The man who called had a little bit of faith. But you know, it was enough. It was enough. It was a faith to actually bring Jesus into the situation. 
And I think what's being, uh, the question that's going on here is that it's not having super faith. It's having enough faith. It's having faith that's enough to lead to action. Earlier on, it says that, um, actually, no, it's a little later. It says that Jesus was in his hometown and he did some miracles, but he said he couldn't do many miracles there because they didn't have any faith. I was thinking, supernatural God of the universe can't do miracles? Oh, of course, no, this is what it means. They didn't bring anybody to him. That was what was wrong. Jesus never went out and sort of systematically going from house to house saying, do you have anybody that's sick? I'd like to heal them. No, he waited for them to bring. And when they brought them, they were healed. And he didn't do miracles because they didn't have enough faith to bring people to Jesus. So faith is actually a believing action here. Now, I found this very encouraging. I found this very encouraging because um, if it was all up to how much faith I had, I wouldn't get very far. I didn't have a lot of faith. But you know what? I've got enough faith to have Jesus in my boat. And this is what it comes down to. These disciples didn't have a lot of faith, but they had enough and they were saved. They had enough to be with Jesus. And that's actually what it took. That is what counted. I, w- I said that I would connect it into the previous story. The previous story in the book of Mark that I'd read the previous day was about this tiny seed, the mustard seed, that grew into a whole tree. Tiny. And Jesus said that's what faith is like. Faith, if you have faith, is like a grain of mustard seed. That's all the disciples had was a grain of mustard seed faith. But that was enough. And this really encouraged me that I didn't need to have some extraordinary faith. I just needed to trust. And so they had Jesus in their boat. Jesus was in the boat, and that was sufficient. Yesterday, I heard a story of, of Tim Keller. When Tim Keller was at, at university, somebody said to him, somebody told him as, uh, 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 an illustration. He said, um, you know how big this, um, you know how far it is to the sun? It's like 96 million miles, something like that. It's a massive distance. Well, you compare that with the size of the whole solar system, which is vastly bigger than that. And then you compare that with the size of our solar system with the distance to the nearest star, which is unimaginably bigger than that. And then you think of how does that compare with our galaxy? And our galaxy is extraordinarily bigger than that. And then that's just one tiny one in the universe, which is vastly bigger than that. And God spoke the universe into being with a word from his mouth. And you want this God to be your personal assistant. And Tim Keller said that kind of changed my thinking. It's not really about having God in your boat just so you can get through the little problems. No, he's the God of the universe. And he's not your personal assistant. He's the one that you serve. And because you serve him, he is in your boat and you have nothing to fear. So I'm beginning to tell you what God was saying to me through this passage. But I've got a little bit more to tell you. And I'm going to talk about how this links in to the big story of Mark. Because I've told you about the stories that have just happened. And as we go through the big story of Mark, I'm just going to go through that. Um, we see a story developing, which is, which I think this particular story of the storm in the boat fits in very well with. So we start off with a kingdom launched in power. We see John the Baptist, the first followers. 
We see Jesus coming and doing amazing miracles and then the scribes and Pharisees attacking him for them. He brings teaching. He brings parables. There's the sower, the parable of the lamp, the mystery of the secretly growing seed. Uh, and then we have the the the, the, uh, the the storm that I've just been talking about and the other miracles. And then this culminates with raising the dead, Jairus' daughter. And then we have this followers are sent out and John dies. So this is the, the first part of this great epic story of, of Jesus. The kingdom is launched in power. And then we have greater miracles and more challenging teaching. So it starts off with Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Then, to cap that, he walks on water, and then he declares all food is clean. Like, contradictory to everything that the law said, Jesus said, I'm telling you that all food is clean. And then, again, contrary to the, what the Old Testament said, he went outside of Israel and started healing Gentiles, and then, and then he dramatically healed a deaf man. And then it ended up with feeding 4,000 people. And at the end, the disciples do not understand. It says they do not understand. There's a little story about them thinking that he's upset with them for not having bread. And he says, how many people were there that I fed? And you think I'm upset with you? You don't have bread. They didn't understand. And so we get, if you like, two platforms building up. We get the kingdom launched in power. Based on that is more miracles, but then challenging teaching that they can't get their heads around and they really don't get it. And then we have the core center from blindness to seeing, the big revelation. And here we have a blind man receives his sight in two stages. This is a man who started off, he was blind, and then he can see like figures like trees walking, and then his sight is completely restored. What's that about? I think it's a picture of us, a picture of the disciples. They were seeing in stages. They saw a bit, and then a bit more, uh, but then we're about to get the big reveal coming. The big reveal, Jesus sees that Jesus is the Messiah. The Spirit reveals it to him. And then to cap that, they see Jesus' glory revealed. They see him transfigured, shining like the sun. And then uh, Jesus says, tell everything and follow me. And he reveals that three times he tells them, I'm going to die and rise again. But still they don't quite get it. And we end up with blind Bartimaeus receiving his sight. The blind receiving his sight. So this central part of Mark is this big revelation. This is who Jesus is. Are you going to understand or are you not? And this relates to us with our storms in the boat. Do you know who you've got in your boat? If you're a Christian, do you really understand who's in the boat with you? Do you get it? Because if you get who's in the boat... What are you going to be afraid of? You know, you, you like these disciples that say, oh, I'm, a, I'm sorry, I didn't get the bread. And Jesus says, look, work, didn't you see me? Feed 5,000, feed 4,000. What are you worried about? Do we get it? We need the spirit to reveal this to us, just like Peter did. Then we get this. So that's the big revelation. And then we have Jesus visits the temple and there's interesting stories where he tells a parable of a vineyard and the vineyard owner comes and there's no fruit from the vineyard and there's no fruit. And so he, he the vineyard is, uh, is, the owners of the vineyard are thrown out and the vineyard is given to new people. And this is a, a story about Israel 
no longer being the only people in the kingdom, but Gentiles being brought into the kingdom because there's no fruit. And this is linked into the temple because Jesus says he's the new cornerstone. He's the new temple of God. And we saw last week how the Romans, who this was written to, the people, the Gentiles, would have been so excited when they realized that the that Jesus wasn't just about the Jews, that he was for them as well. And they didn't have to go to Jerusalem to the temple, but he was the one they were now worshipping. They were the temple of God. So Jesus then, there's a whole lot of temple imagery and fruit imagery, and ends by saying the temple is going to be destroyed and I'm going to return one day. Just as I've come to the temple now and entered the temple, one day I'm going to enter the spiritual temple, my people. I'm going to return to be ready. And so this is the the, uh, the, the the next step, and then we end up with this amazing uh, culmination that uh, Jesus is the Son of God and starts off with a story. What Mark does, he starts a section with a story which is like a key story for this section, like a keynote. And then he tells the other stories, then he ends with, with a story that goes back to the beginning that kind of reflects it. So we have this woman anointing Jesus and he says, she's doing it for my burial. And then we have the Last Supper betrayal, death, Jesus is tried. Peter denies him. Jesus is tried by Pilate. Jesus is crucified. But a centurion, a Roman Gentile, says, truly this man is the son of God. How does this link into the the storm? Because here is the greatest storm of ever. The son of God is dying on the cross. The heavens are darkened. The temple curtain is rent from top to bottom. This is the biggest storm in creation. And the centurion gets it. He says, this is okay. Actually, this isn't a tragedy. This man has died, but actually everything is wonderful. He praises God because he understands that Jesus is surviving the storm. And of course, the chapter ends. The women come and anoint Jesus, but he's been raised from the dead. He survived the storm. And this is the greatest news for all of us, because the storm of death is one that Jesus has gone through and he has survived. And if he's in your boat, then you will survive the storm of death. And so I want to ask you, what if Jesus, sorry, that is how the whole thing fits together with all of those things stacked to one another, culminating the statement, this man is the son of God. What if Jesus is not in your boat? What if you've never trusted him? What if you think your life is too important to trust to some invisible being. I've I've got news for you, and I'm afraid it's not good news. It's not good news because there is a storm coming. This world is going to end. You're going to die, and your ship will sink if Jesus is not in it. And But what does Jesus promise? He promises that your ship will be unsinkable if he is in it. He promises that even in the storm of death, He has defeated it. In fact, there's another storm after death, which is the judgment. It's appointed man to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And that storm, he has defeated by paying the price in himself. The fact he was raised from the dead was a declaration. He paid the price. He'd won it. It was a victory statement. Do you reject this kind offer? Do you reject this free offer that he will be with you? Don't reject him. Ask him 
to come out and take over your boat. Trust him that actually he does care. He does care and he's loving and good. And pray and don't give up till you know him. Well, I want to, I want to tell you, I want to end by saying to you what God said to me personally through this. And uh, what God said to me is, he said, Andrew, your whole life is like a storm. Your whole life, because in some way you're worried that your life won't count for anything. You're worried you're going to die and it won't mean anything. Your life will just have been just another life that that you made mistakes and didn't go anywhere. That's what you're worried about. And I want you to, I want you to know, Andrew, that your life will count because I am in your boat. It will count. It will count. And that was such a comfort to me that he is in my boat and he is with me and my life will count. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. It may be something vague like mine was or it may be something very specific. But I want you to apply this teaching into your life right now. And I want you, if you're not a Christian, I want you to invite Jesus into your boat. And if you are a Christian, I want you to accept the comfort that he gives you and the knowledge that you are unsinkable. Jesus, we thank you for giving us this story. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing the disciples to fail in this way so that we would know that it's not about our amazing faith, not about how superhuman we are, but about about the fact that you are with us. And thank you, God, that you are with all those who put their trust in you. And we pray, Lord, that you will speak to everybody here right now to know where this story applies to them and just to be able to trust you that you are enough for them right now and you will take them through the storm and that you care for them. You really do care for their deepest wants and needs. Amen. Amen.